Hello, and welcome to Harder Than It Looks, Parking Uncovered, a podcast to facilitate connections and illuminate real solutions to common problems within the parking and mobility industry. I'm Brian Wolf, President and CEO of Parker Technology, and I'll be your host as we speak with parking professionals from across the industry at all levels to uncover tips, tricks, and best practices to manage what we all know is harder than it looks parking a car. Joining me today is Mary Catherine Schneider, a parking strategist with the Seattle Department of Transportation, better known as SDOT. Mary Catherine Schneider is a parking strategist with SDOT, with the SDOT curb management team. Over the last 25 years, she has worked on a variety of curbside policy programs and technology projects. She manages a team of curb space planners working to settle curbside access priority mobile parking payments, neighborhood parking and access planning, and the performance-based parking pricing program. Say that 10 times fast. She has an undergrad degree in government from Cornell University and a master's degree in urban planning and transportation planning from the University of Washington. On the show today, we're gonna cover why managing the curb is so darn hard, what curb management strategy is, how curb management has changed through the years, and then what we can all do to be a little greener when it comes to curb management. Mary Catherine, welcome to Harder Than It Looks. It's great to have you. Great. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Looking fun. This is going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah, this is going to be fun because pe- lots of people throw curb management around. I'm glad to finally talk to an expert. Oh, yeah. One of the things about curb management is that it actually has been around for quite a while, even though a lot of there are a lot of new people um, that have uh, found it. But we, yeah. ha- you know, there are yeah, a lot you're... of city planners and transportation engineers that have been doing curb management for some time. So, <laughs> in the shadows, as it were, right. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. I my goal today is to bring you out of the shadows and That's... get you into the limelight where you belong because. As the podcast says, it's, I'm certain that it's yeah, harder yeah. than it looks. Some look. days. All right. So here's what I like to do with my guests. The, the obvious thing is to ask you how you got into parking, mm-hmm. but I actually like to go back a little bit further. You can go back as far as you want, but I'd like to hand you the mic, go back as far as you want, and then just tell us your story. Tell us where you started and how you got to where you are today, which of course then will involve how you got into curb management in the first place. So- uh, Hand any of the mic and and just tell us your story. Uh, Sure. So I've been in Seattle for almost 30 years, a little over 30 years. Almost all that time, actually, I have been working at the city of Seattle. I've moved around, although primarily I've been at the Seattle Department of Transportation and various offices. And a lot of that time I have been working on parking and curb management. And I think one thing that People were like, wow, you've just done one job. I was like, no, I. it's actually like 100 jobs on any given day. There's so many parts of parking and curb management. And yeah. so that's what I think exciting and fascinating about it, um, among the many things that it is. So, but I, I oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was, I was going to, I was going to prompt you around Cornell. So Cornell's oh, on yeah. the East Coast, Seattle's on the West Coast. How did you end up at Cornell? Yeah, I grew up in the Midwest. So I was in the middle of the okay. country. And I had, I was in Minneapolis and in high school and 
had always thought about going out to the East Coast for school and went out there. And honestly, and this is silly unless you've been to Cornell, the the day I was out there, the Bell Tower, which is fairly famous, played the Flintstones theme at noon. And that was it. I was like, wow, this, this is crazy. And it's a beautiful place. And I really loved, I was a government political science major. I actually did international relations, which I like to think plays into my curb and parking huh. management, but I'm not really sure how. I didn't quite, I knew that there was an urban planning program at Cornell, but I didn't actually, oddly enough, I didn't take advantage of those classes, which was really unfortunate. On my part. Yeah. But then I, after graduates, after I graduated, me and all the other Cornell government graduates went down to Washington, D.C., as we all did. But I actually worked at a nonprofit there. And it was right after the federal, the 1992 federal transportation law passed called ICE T, which was really one of the first transportation acts that really encompassed like walking, biking, and transit pl and urban planning. Mm -hmm and required cities and metropolitan areas to do planning um, and not just be a road building system. And right. the group I worked for, we wrote up stories about how like, advocacy groups and cities were implementing the, this new federal transportation law and what was working. And I really liked it. And I, I learned this whole new kind of transportation planning and advocacy effort. And, and the city got involved as a resident got involved with transit and parking discussions and realized that I also wanted to know more and be more understanding of the kind of the rules and philosophy and just I needed to learn more. And so I decided to go to graduate school and why not go out to the other side of the country, just moving all around. And, and so I came out to Seattle. Almost sight unseen, actually, and but it's obviously a beautiful place here. It's amazing. I love living here, and I really couldn't imagine anywhere else. Seattle is gorgeous. I, I love the scenery and the all of the the water that sort of is everywhere around the around land and all mm -hmm. of that. It's it's a great place for sure. Yeah. So was Washington's program their, their urban planning and transportation planning? Was it famous? Is it famous? I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think that's pretty well known. I liked that it really, what I liked about it was that I was able to also get a pretty good research job where I ended up really getting hands-on planning efforts and actually ended up doing a my own parking study as a master's student and learned a lot that way and had some really great graduate student jobs counting people, counting cars, counting that kind of thing. And so that really set me up for being able to work in the city, among other things. Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about your parking study. What, what were you studying specifically? Oh, this was a long time ago. It was just a really basic occupancy. And I think just an occupancy study. The It was actually connected to a, an effort to look at the urban form of, and this was a long time ago. This is still a question of how are we designing neighborhood business districts? Do sidewalks and pedestrian facilities really matter? Uh, it turns out they do, which was yeah. helpful to know. But we are, so we were in a study, and this was in the mid-90s, comparing some suburban parts of the city, of the region, and some neighborhood, some old, kind of older Seattle neighborhoods that are on a grid system. 
And so I did the parking study of the whole of all those areas. And, and since then, I've gone on to manage probably dozens and dozens of parking studies. I guess what I learned from doing it myself was that the best thing to do is to hire people to do the parking <laughs> data collection. So you should always do a parking okay. study. That's what I tell. That's why we have our our interns in our office or our our associate planners at least house cars at some point. But at th- some point, it's great that there are tra- uh, traffic and parking study consultants out there willing to do it. Yeah. Okay. So you got to do it your, yourself first. Yeah. Doing, but then after that, yeah. outsource it. Yeah. So. All right. So that's good. Okay. So then, when you left grad school, did you go straight to the SDOT? Yes. Yes. I, I've been in the city for a while. The agent, the departments have changed around. I've moved around a bit. I used to be in a, the city used to have a long range planning office that has since went away. And then a new version of it came back that I, I'm obviously not in. City agency names change, come and go. Sometimes people, they have the same desk, but they find out they have a new department name. That's always fun. That's happened to come. Like a story there. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's a good one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, and I, I was hired as a transportation planner, started as an intern and started and then became a, a permanent employee. And when I started, I was one of the few women in the group. And since, and I think to Estas credit, there are actually quite a few women in our transportation agency. And that's, that's really good to see. And, but uh, yeah, when I started, I did a wide variety of transportation kind of planning, uh, but I had done this parking work and there was nobody doing kind of parking policy at the city. The city did, they installed meters or they managed the meter system, but no one really did parking policy to, you know, in a coordinated way. And so I, it was something that I fell into and jumped into and then have been doing that since. So what do you think it was about parking that yeah. was so interesting to you? Parking and also curb management that yeah. they are, they seem like one topic, but they're really so many. And that when you're talking about parking policy or curb, it affects so much of the transportation system and so much of the economy and so much of people's lives. For good or bad, everybody has a parking experience. Right. Yeah. And everybody has a curb experience, even if they don't know it, because they like you get off the bus, you're at the curb. You've just had a you've just interacted with the curb. Yeah. Even though you're in a bus stop. So there's I just like that totality, I guess, the broadness of it and totality of it. I'm just drawn to that strategic nature of it, I think. So, yeah. Okay. So you're drawn to the complexity of it. it. Right. Once you were exposed, you're like, okay, there's just a lot of facets to this. Right. And. You didn't see a lot of people there. So you you filled the space as it were, because it it was interesting to you and you saw that there weren't others doing it. So it was an opportunity to make your mark as it were. Sure. Or maybe I was like, they're like, oh, she's crazy enough to do this. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, For sure. but, uh, that's fine. Okay. So going back a little bit to what you said about the names changing and oh, yeah. long-term planning go- coming and going to me. That speaks to, I've heard others talk about how parking, probably transportation, even curb management, is it, it tends to be an afterthought or it tends to get kicked around a little bit. And my, my suspicion is as parking 
moved from one department to the next, people really didn't know what to do with it. And so they allowed it to go because they didn't see it as, quote, that important. And so I'm interested in your perspective on why it moved around, if that's the fact, and then do you think it's in the right place now? And where is it now? And, and do you think it's in the right place now? And, and right. why people well, matter? Yeah, and I should clarify that um, when our group moved from our planning, the planning group to the department, the line department, as you say, if you have an engineering office, um, it yeah. was the entire transportation planning group. The engineering department at the time didn't actually have really a big planning office, much less parking planning. So yeah. you know, we added a lot yeah. of planning functions in addition to parking. But I would say that's why I think we've and our team have talked with other cities that where is the curb management function in your department? How are you all organized? Um, for us at SDOT, um, for many years, we had a parking and curb planning group. And then there was a separate division. There was the parking operations and permit team. And we worked very collaboratively, but still had multiple lines of that we were reporting to different division directors and all that kind of stuff. Probably five, eight years ago, we, and this gets, it might be in the weeds, I'm not sure, but the city ended up okay. starting up a new transit and mobility division that I'm in today. Okay. And we created a new parking team. And so merged yeah. everybody together. So now, and that's still the case today. So I lead the kind of the curb policy and program development. We have a, a parking operations, which we like, I like to call, and they like to call themselves. They keep all the lights on in terms of the parking, paid parking system and the permit systems. We have an engineering group because we have quite a bit of asset management and work order management with the science yeah. that we issue for curbs. We, we have almost 100,000 curb signs in the city. And then we have our own meter shop, which in terms of organization, like I know a lot of cities don't have their own meter shop. That might be something that's contracted out, but we have always had our own meter shop. We have about 15 people or so that maintain the pay stations that we have and install related paid parking signs. So Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's something I should have asked you up front, or maybe now is the right time. So give me a sense of size and scale of the operation for the parking division of yeah. uh, of So we have 30, there's 32, maybe we just added a couple of people. So maybe we have 32 people or so. Okay. And then I would say for about half is the, in our paid parking shop, I often say meters, but we technically don't have any single space meters anymore. Our meter shop, our paid parking shop. And then the other half are in our, or the planning op policy operations engineering yeah. group. Yeah. Okay. So, All right, and, and then how many? Division. We're not our own division. We're within a division that has okay. um, 60, 70 people or so. Yeah. Okay. And and how many meters and how many spaces in the city? Yeah, we have about ten to 11,000 paid spaces, probably closer to 11,000. It varies. And then we have about 1,500 pay stations. And then we yeah. also have mobile payment. And our mobile payment rates is, we're now in December, was up to 78%. So by far, most people pay by phone. And then we have people that use a credit card at the pay station. So. Yeah. Okay. All right. So big operation, mm -hmm. 32 people. That sounds small, actually, to me. 
I know. Uh, you will love more. So you're, you, you are lean and mean, which yeah. is good. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So then for my next question, you're at a cocktail party. You tell somebody that you developed strategy for mm -hmm. curb management team and they stare at you like a deer in headlights. They're like, yeah. okay. Yeah. And so you, you assure them that it's a critical job, but how do you explain it next? What, what do you, how do you, how do you explain your job to them? Yeah, oddly, I honestly, I don't often mention that, but I did recently. <laughs> okay, go, well, that's the story I, in and of itself. Yeah, I used to, I use, but I did recently and because I was at a climate type happy hour. So I thought folks would know about transportation and curb management. And I took the opportunity then to let people know about the importance of curb management and its connection to climate policy and climate change. So I tend to make it, try to make it real for people. It was like the curb out there yeah. or if we're at a bar. So the liquor here gets delivered by a big truck. Yeah. They stop at the load zone out front. And if they don't get the yeah. load zone and they can't get the delivery, you don't get your drink. So I, that's, yeah. I think a little bit the, I think the reality of in some ways of curb management, that it's not, it's not really a fancy thing. It's can be very like complicated and whatnot. And it is, but it also is yeah. at the end of the day, businesses get delivery so that they can make things and sell things. Residents get packages. They get people dropped off, picked up. We have short-term parking because you go out and if you choose to drive, you park somewhere near your place that you're going to. You yeah. Know, it's very yeah, complicated it and it's hard to manage all of that demand, which is almost always greater than the supply, but. Yeah. Yep. Which creates friction and creates yeah. heat and people get upset when they can't find a place to park. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I know myself, I, I can tell stories where I, I lived, I lived North of Indianapolis and one weekend I came down and there was the month, the monster truck rally and there was no place to park. We were trying to go to dinner at a mm -hmm. specific restaurant. There was no place to park, no, no curb, no, no parking spots. And I, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going home. And so we, we left downtown. We went to the North side just because I couldn't find a place to park my car. That's the kind of stuff that, that it's hopefully would make it real for the, for the restaurateurs and all of the folks there that understand that if you don't have places to park. It's, it's tough for people to get around. Yes, that's definitely the case. But I think also at SDOT, um, our primary focus really is on transit and walking and biking. And we're a dense populated city. And in our business districts, we really want, especially to work, but also getting around um, early evening, we'd really like people to, if you can take the bus to where you're going or walk or bike to the nearby restaurant or something like that. How do we help that? And then also provide short-term parking that can fill in that gap, especially for regional trips or regional destinations, you know, or evenings and weekends or late night trips that transit isn't as easy to serve. Yeah. So, okay. So, so you can tell I'm in the Midwest. So I, mm -hmm. I, I see the world through a driving lens, right? You're in an urban, a dense urban Yeah, that's true. Right. A little bit different. Through, through transportation, through public transportation. All right. So what kinds of things do you do to incentivize these folks to take public transportation versus driving a car? One of the recent examples, we actually just finished up a expansion of the uh, paid parking around what's uh, this neighborhood business district called Green Lake. And it's actually a big green 
big lake, Green Lake. Um, and so it's a regional destination. It's a big, it's a regional park. But, and, and then also there's, it's a business district and we wanted to expand. The businesses had expanded a few blocks. So we were adding paid parking around those to make sure there was short-term parking. There's a nearby senior, senior housing, senior home. And they were concerned about the employees that work 24-7 shifts. Where are they going to park? And we worked uh, with them. And one thing we did was connect them to our, the, the state and then our program. Our, our office has a kind of an employee, kind of employee transit coordination program. So we work with employees to say, hey, here's how you get access to transit. Here's how you can get bus passes for your employees. Here's how you get carpool or vanpool incentives, all those kinds of management, demand management strategies. What I really like about our curbside management uh, program is that it, this program is that it, yes, we are going to go talk about paid parking and about load zones, but we can also talk about putting in um, some bike parking corrals at the intersections. You're the, so people are biking, we have, there's bike parking or connect employees up with transit passes. Let's say if that's something that would help them out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And in the All process, right. we learned that, which we didn't really know, but the lake is regularly stocked with trout. So we learned a whole nother reason why we need to manage the street parking around the lake because it's a fisher draw, fishing yeah, right. draw. People coming to fish. People are coming to fish. And I want to make sure that there's adequate short-term parking for that. So. All right. So you made sure that there were enough places for people to come in and park their cars and uh, grab their tackle boxes and go yeah, to fish. Yeah. And go to the restaurants right. and maybe run the business district and all that. Yeah. All right. So then I'm going to just take a half a step back. So when you talk about curb management, think about, okay, so what's the big deal if somebody borrows the curb for a minute while they're dropping something off and all of that? But tell me about the sort of the real world implications for not managing the curb for the horror story. Yeah. The well, downstream, we wouldn't know. One of the things we've seen over the last few years is just the growth in food delivery apps, Uber, Lyft, pickup, drop-off, package yeah. delivery. And and so how do we manage and provide appropriate space at the curb so people aren't double parking or blocking transit lanes or uh, bike facilities when they're doing the pickup, drop-off or package delivery or something like that? We, yeah. we call these for buildings, we call them critical access needs. Any building has a, they have critical needs, say for access of package delivery, goods delivery, passenger, ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, kind of disables solid waste, garbage, trash, whatever, uh, solid waste pickup. Those are, those all have to get managed because they're compulsory, like they happen. And if they're not happening on site in a parking lot or a loading dock, then they're happening in the curb. And Seattle, a lot of cities don't have a lot of alleys. And so it's not, it's not happening in the alley either. So for us, having appropriately you know, designated zones that are the right length and at the right part of the curb, right spot on the block, that makes it easy for people to access, that's really, that's important for us. Okay. So is that to the length? So that you get 50 feet in front of an apartment building or 50 feet in front of a restaurant or something like that. That mm-hmm. That's something that, that a curb management strategist would be worried about. Is that fair? No, yeah. And we have a long, long-standing program where we put out signs for commercial loading 
for truck zones or passenger pickup or just general loading. What we're working on now, we actually got, along with other cities, we got a USDOT smart grant that they issued last year. They started the program, USDOT started last year. Um, So we're looking at a digital uh, permit for our commercial vehicle load zone program. Um, which our, our commercial permit vehicle permit started in 1990 and hasn't really been updated or changed. And it's really still the same vehicle definitions. And I joke that I think that there's definitions in the code for uh, what a commercial vehicle is for vehicles that are no longer sold today or made. So this is, we need some modern solutions for the problems we have today. And so that's what we're working on with the smart grant. The other thing that we're doing in, with the Open Mobility Foundation, we're part of a CURB working group. And that group of, it is really cities around the country and a lot of then tech mapping services or those kinds of folks that are interested in a CURB data specification. So they've developed this set of rules for here's how we can collectively have a data, same data specification for all of our CURB signs. Even though cities around the country, we all sign our curbs differently and have a whole bunch of different rules. Yeah. But if we can yeah. have a, the same similar spec, then you can imagine in the future, instead of getting a mapping destination to the front door, you get it to the parking or you get it to the load zone if you're, right. if you're doing a delivery. Commercial vehicle or something. Okay, yeah, so- that's what we're, we're trying to figure out. How do we get data created? data be able to shared and also a two-way street so that we can get information back from people to know these are where their hotspots are. How do we, how can we as a city so yeah. that we're addressing the traffic congestion and double parking and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Okay. So these digital permits is, will that involve, I'm, I'm showing my ignorance now. Mm-hmm. Will, will that involve charging UPS or charging Uber for dwell time at a curb? Yeah, it could. We do that today. We issue an annual permit in Seattle or you pay okay. either at a commercial load zone today, you either pay for an annual permit or you pay at the zone via our mobile payment, pay by phone app. Okay. So we're still trying to figure out exactly how we would do that and then who would really be a part of that. With some trips, like you, we talked about Uber or Lyft, I mean, they might barely be at the curb for a minute or two. Right. What kind of technology senses that and then was able to recognize that and charge that in a legitimate way. That might be a few years off, but, and what's, and we also want to make sure the other thing we're doing with our smart grant is figuring out what is all over this purpose? Like how, what do we want to accomplish with pricing? And like there's value to the right of way and in dense areas, it's got quite a bit of value, but what do we all accomplish? with charging and what can we make, how can we make the parking and transportation system better with these charges, but also make the system work better for the companies themselves, right? Yeah. When it, when, when they're able to get to the curb and they make efficient deliveries, they're benefiting as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're we're trying to help them with that. Okay. Yeah. All right. This stuff is so easy. It's obvious. But we do need someone to. All that was obvious to me. Okay. If we, we do need someone to invent something a little bit. Yeah. So, it, it, so you know what, actually that's the perfect link into the next question, which is, so you've been in, you, you've been in curb management for 25 years, at least at SDOT. How has the technology changed 
And how has your job changed as a result of the technology? And then on a spectrum of one to 10, and maybe this should be the second question, but spectrum of one to 10, back to somebody designing the perfect solution. Where are we on the spectrum between one being no solution and 10 being the perfect solution in your mind? Yeah, my, and I tell a lot of people this, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a Luddite, but I'm definitely not a, we need the fancy tech bells and whistles sure. kind of thing. Because um, I worry that we're not able to really maintain that or keep that. I'd like to see things that are less equipment in the right of way, because that all means something you have to maintain and keep track of. What I really like about our mobile payment system is that I and you have the technology. You have the equipment. You have the parking equipment. I, I don't have to provide it as a city. And so that's... and. So when we started mobile payment in 2012, and it was really interesting to talk, especially within the city, people were like, wait, you can pay for things on your phone? <laughs> yes, you can, actually. You I remember it. doing it for the first time, and it was probably in 2012 in yeah. Washington, D.C., and I was like, oh, hey, how cool is this? Yeah, yeah. And there's a major coffee company in Seattle that people do that every day. But, <laughs> but, but since then, it's now... Many people, that's, that is their computer and that's how they, it's so much more. So I think that the what's in people's phones has really, I think for me, been the game changer for one of the game changers. We, on the curb side, we have a little bit of a struggle with cameras because the city of Seattle has a pretty strict surveillance ordinance in terms of wanting to make sure that we're protecting the privacy of residents of people that are in the city. Just easily putting up cameras is a little bit of a challenge for us. And also just even a maintenance and operations of that is for a curb management, I think is a little challenging. We've been thinking more about what kind of sensors work, but looking at cameras as well. But I really, I know it feels like old school to say, I really like people's phones. Is that yeah. old school? Yeah, that's funny. And, and that pay station, right? like they kind of work. Yeah, they kind of work. Yeah. What's old is new again. Yeah. And it all comes down to what gives you communications and what gives you power. Yeah. And one of the challenges, and I, this might be unique to Seattle, but we have a really difficult time accessing separate the utility power system. So we, whatever we, technology we bring, we have to bring our own power. So battery powered and solar. So that's pretty <laughs> limiting. And then communications and tied to that is challenging. Yeah. You've already got the, you've got the equipment in your pocket. I like that. Yeah. I'll use that catchphrase. We've already got the equipment in our pocket. Okay. So then transitioning to your personal passion, I can tell from the bio <laughs> form that you filled uh -huh. out that you're really passionate about the climate. Obviously you said you were just at a conference mm -hmm. and what can we do personally to be greener as it relates to all of the things we're bringing to the curb, I suspect is where you're headed. Yeah. So in our team, and we're actually just working on our 2024 climate curb management plan. And really just to give a climate lens to the programs that we have. So thinking about our paid parking program. So we set parking rates in Seattle based on data we collect, the local uh, conditions in each neighborhood. But wanting to keep in mind that setting charging for parking does affect and can affect people's trip behavior and decide, oh, I'm not going to pay. $5 is too much. I'm going to take the bus. I'll do that. That sort of thing. So making that connection. And then with commercial delivery and goods delivery, 
we are looking at starting up a, a cargo bike, uh, zero emissions cargo bike program, seeing if there are small businesses around Seattle that are interested in doing deliveries by cargo, you know, electric bike, or if there are other, you know, companies that want to do food delivery. And, you know, New York City has got a huge program for cargo bike delivery for food and meals. So things like that. So how do we transition from large vehicles to electric vehicles and then to to smaller vehicles like bikes? And then we have a, we also are working with our Seattle City Light, which is our public utility. And we've been doing, we have about 30 curbside chargers that are in place in residential areas of the city. So providing people with curbside charging if they don't have they don't have a driveway or something outside that they can't do curbside. Char- they can't yeah. do their own charging. So okay. those kinds of things. But I also think I like to personally, I try to think of, all right, how many deliveries am I getting? Can I combine those? We all have a, I think, try to live a more climate friendly life. If yeah. we said that we can, when we all do better or worse some days than others. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, just thinking about the number of deliveries and how it's taken off. It's mm-hmm. grown exponentially. That they weren't there before, right? Although I suppose yeah. maybe the balance is that I had to drive to the store, but I, I'm not sure. It probably doesn't balance out very well, actually. It's probably still worse today than it was of me driving to the store to get whatever it was I was going to get. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't really looked at that. That's an interesting question, but I would suspect my guess is that there are more things bought now and delivered than yeah. we were buying before. There's just more things available. Yeah. So. Okay. All right, we're going to transition now to what I'll call the lightning round. It's not really okay. the lightning round because I'm asking you questions, but I'm asking the same base questions to, to everyone. So my first question, may uh, you may need to think about it just a minute. So if somebody in your office hears a phrase, you don't utter it, but they, they hear a catchphrase. So for me, experiments never fail. It's not over till I win. If somebody hears that in the office somewhere, they know that I originated that phrase, that catchphrase. Are you known for a phrase? What are you, what is Mary Catherine Snyder known for? Um, around the office, actually, I have been doing our Pi Day celebrations, March 14th. It's 314, and we celebrate Pi Day. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so you're the Pi lady? I bring pie, but there are actually a lot of bakers at SDOT. So luckily, a lot of people bring pie. And then people okay. are really good at eating pie, which is necessary for pie. Day. So, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so pie, 314, I got it. All right. Next thing, what's the hardest thing you've ever done in life? We'll get to parking in just a second. What's the hardest thing you've ever done? I don't know, probably a lot. So many things. I don't know a lot. In the last couple of years ago, I chose to remodel my house. And that was a big learning experience for me. And I, I don't know, it's not, I don't hurt as relative, but it was, I learned a lot. And it's one of those things where you're not going to do it again to practice your learn, your do it better next time. I know people say, and I've heard this is true, that you're never done remodeling once you start. But yeah, it, and, and it was great. I got a whole new kitchen and I, I love it. But yeah, it's a lot to do, and, and it was very difficult, but it turned out okay, so it was great. Did you do it okay, or did you have to? Were you the general contractor? No, I had a general contractor. Yeah. Okay. But I moved All out right. of my house. That part was fine, but it was over COVID, so it's just weird. 
because everything was weird. Some supply chain issues. Wait, that cabinet's supposed to be, I have green cabinets. Some are supposed to be green. Some are supposed to be white. They didn't quite get which ones were. But, oh, but I really like it. But I learned a lot about how to, how to really manage that process as the homeowner. Yeah. Okay. So you got some PC experience. Yeah. All right. So then what's the hardest thing about your job in parking? Hardest thing. I really, I love my job and I really enjoy the people I work with. I think some of the challenges, and I know a lot of people have those different cities, is that cities have a lot of legacy equipment and technology. Mm-hmm. And there are just yeah. some guys where that is just uh, challenging and can be a little frustrating. And just a little bit of a slow moving nature of government can be. But, but I also think that that offers chance to really think about what we're doing, but and that gets a chance to push us a little bit. Can we try yeah. something? What's a mobile payment in 2012? Is, yeah, actually people do pay for things by their phone out there in the world. Maybe they don't at, yeah. in the city, employees don't, but in the world they do. And you know, we can actually yeah. be really successful this way. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that the back to the theme of harder than it looks or right. why aren't they doing this or that and the other thing. Yeah. You have a new world or a 2023 experience and you go to a city and they're like, why aren't they doing it this way? And what you're not thinking about is the limitations of the infrastructure that allowing allowing you to do those things, especially when you compare it to new, new, where they can just build it from the ground up. Right. right. Yeah, no, exactly. And that there's just trying to understand that and work within that, but also push a little forward as best you can. I like to be that person. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Good. All maybe right. Bring, so if you could bring wait, pie or a cake, I bring dessert uh, <laughs> if I need to. You bring dessert too? Okay. Yeah. Good. I'm going to remember that. Okay. Mary Catherine's bringing dessert. That's yeah. good. All right. So if you could wave your magic wand and fix one thing in parking, what would it be? Oh, I don't know. I think, actually, I've been trying to think about how to, in terms of the different groups, that's folks that are transit riders and bicyclists, and everybody that wants a piece of the curb, how do we, this is, it's like way too vague, but how do we all understand the delivery needs? Because I, I feel like sometimes we get into, a, oh, we should just have it this way. I'm like, really? So do you ever get Amazon delivery packages? Because I'm pretty right. sure you do at your house. Yeah. So how are these yeah. people going to get it if they no longer have a load zone? And so just how to help people see those kinds of the importance of curb management and, and yeah. at that level of it, of just how do we, that it, it's not, it's not a huge philosophy in, in so much as it's really about access for things that are basic services in some cases that make the yeah. city work. Yeah. So, so the, the giving people universal knowledge yeah, right. about yeah, that's, all that's what people yeah. that want access to great. the curb, right? Yeah. They're, they're seeing it very myopically as, as their problem. And uh, they're not seeing the 101 other use cases for a, a, a curb that's available to someone else, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, all right. Well, we'll yeah. wave our manic wand yeah. and, and everybody okay. will be all knowing about all right. of the curb uses. Okay. So when you're not parking cars, what do you do for fun? I go see a lot of music 
and Seattle. Seattle's got a great music scene. I like to go see music. I like to travel to go see music. Yeah. My thing. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's that. You're quite good at indie bands. I've heard. Yeah. I, I like knowledgeable. Yeah. I try to keep up and then I, um, have my favorites eighties and nineties. So, but there's so many bands out there. There's so yeah. much music. Yeah. It's lots and lots of bands. Yeah. I, are you familiar with Elliot Smith? Yes. Yeah. You're sad. Okay. Yeah. I always feel sad. Oh, is there a story there? So I, I, full disclosure, I went to, uh, I, I went and Googled the 50 best indie bands. Okay. From Pitchfork. And, uh, and, and I ended up with, I, I ended up with Elliot Smith is in the top. Yeah. And so I thrown it out. I, I'm oh, okay. sad I don't know many of the indie bands. So does okay. Elliot Smith have a story? Yeah. So he, uh, was a singer, uh, and he was in a couple bands in the, Portland, Oregon, Seattle area in yeah. the 90s. And just like he became famous because he was friends with, I want to say, Gus Van Zandt. And so there's okay. like a movie that he's connected to. But yeah, some either or is, I think, the album that they pitchfork cites is great. Yeah. But he, yeah, he passed away in the, I think, uh, the 2000s. But great singer songwriter, amazing songs. So, yeah, I listened to a couple of songs just to get into yeah. I I haven't been exposed, so now I've been exposed. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, um, all right. What's your favorite? Pick, pick your favorite. Okay. My my, favorite uh, my latest favorite band is called The Best. Yes. And it's The Best. I have a hard time saying it. it's The Best, like the name Beth. Yep, The Best. But plural. Yeah. And they're from New Zealand. And right. they're, they're power pop, but rock music. They're amazing. They've had a couple of new albums out recently. They're really fun. Okay. Yes. All right. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make the Beths famous, and we're yes. gonna trace it all the way back to this podcast. Uh-huh. That and they were so. on tour with Death Cab for Cutie. So they're, they're they are for the parking technology circuit. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna make them famous. They'll be like, how did all these parking people find us? Uh, oh, yeah. Know. Amazing. Uh, so yeah. from harder than it looks, maybe we can get the Beths on and they can be in segment two and it's harder than it looks to uh, make a, make an album. Yeah. Yeah. People right. Like- right. Yeah. All right. We'll yeah. get to work on that. Okay. All right. So last question in the speed round, what, what are you most proud of? In life or at work or so anything? It could be one of each. If you, you can, I'll give you two. You can oh. have a life and a I shouldn't have asked for that. <laughs> and I guess that are often. <laughs> well, let me, you, I have to think of more. The, the mic is yours. Yeah. You um, I've been really happy with the work that I've done and being able to, the team that I have and the folks that I work with at, and our curve group are amazing. I, they're, and we have a fun time at work, but also work really hard and get our, get our, obviously get our work done. But just are really, people are really like interested in making the city a better place. And yeah. that's what I, and I, a lot of cities, you always, it's not so much more the oh, what did government do? But no, these folks are like, we're just working all the time trying to make it a better place. And I really yeah. love that. And I really like that the various programs and policies that have been able to be in place for quite a while that I've been fortunate to have a, a bit of a work on that. That's been great. Yeah. You've got your, you have your signature on some of these uh, policies. Yeah. 
And some credits, yeah, rolling credits of parking requirement policies of the city or our performance pricing program, those kinds of things. I'm really been fortunate to be able to work on and help shape. So that's good. So that's great. Yeah. Okay. All right. This isn't the last question. This is just one more question. So what haven't I asked you about that you, you think is important as it relates to parking being harder than it looks? This has been really fun. So I don't know that I feel like we've left really anything out. I don't know that we've really, it's, it's like a interview response. It is like the sandwich where you give the positive and then a little bit of negative and then another positive because it's, have we really, yeah. has it really said how hard it is? I think some days it is hard because you're, at the end of the day, only one thing can be in a space at time. That's physics. Yeah. I believe that's physics. And like we're dealing with some basic laws that and economics that I think people don't want to recognize and don't want it to be yeah. true. And yeah. people don't really want to pay, even though we're making them pay. Uh, and so that, I don't know that those things, that's not what makes it harder. I think that just makes you just want to, okay. We could take that in or we can, this is a system we have and this is why we do it. And this is what we're we're always trying to get better. I think is what we're trying to make this system more equitable, equitable, more climate friendly, safer. And we're just, it's working on getting it better. So if that helps make it less hard, I'm hopefully. Yeah. I think for my part, the issues that you're raising only one car can be in spot in at the curb at a time is are things that people don't think about because again, it's back to, they're only thinking about it in terms of their Uber driver. They're not talking, they're not thinking about it in terms of five people ordered DoorDash. And so there are three Amazon trucks with three different deliveries or five different deliveries. And we have to learn to share the curb because everyone's thinking about it so myopically. And then the other thing that really strikes me just watching your response is to humanize the fact that there are people in your department that genuinely care about getting it right. And they're working diligently and Mm -hmm. earnestly to make the policies and make the, the curb work for everyone. And all of that is invisible when you pull up to an inanimate sign of the curb. And in a lot of ways, what, what you've done, at least in this, in the short hour that we've had together is you're humanizing the work that everybody does on city planning and curbside management and all of that. And we all just gloss right over it because parking is parking is harder than it looks or curb management's harder than it looks because there's just a lot of decisions behind the scenes that, that are happening that we can't see that are invisible to the, to the person who doesn't, who's not doing the work. And maybe they just see the outcome. Maybe they don't like the outcome. Yeah. And for what it's worth, we talk a lot with uh, other guests about people being very upset about having to pay for parking. They're like, why do I have to pay for parking? It it should be free. We're like, how did the concrete get poured? How did we pay for the concrete and the signs and the infrastructure that supports it? And all this, how do we pay for the people that are doing the planning behind the curb management? It's uh, just trying to help them connect dots. When I go to the grocery store, I would like the food for free, but it's not, right? (laughs) So why I want to go to the grocery store and get whatever I want, whenever I want and just walk out. something. 
Yeah. So we, you know, we have a, yeah. So there's a little bit of a, certainly an irrational fa- fantasy that parking is and transportation are separate, but they're really, yeah. they're just, they're not. So No, they're really not. So, so that's okay. the other magic well, wand. So yeah. Oh, okay. okay. The other magic wand to, yeah. to help people understand that, that nothing is free. Nothing is free. Yeah. Maybe other people would also would want that. But other people yeah. have a little better ability to charge. They're not going to let me walk yeah. out of a grocery store without paying. I like the analogy, though. You can't walk out of a grocery store without paying because, yeah. duh, right? <laughs> like, yeah. we, we can't park for free? Yeah. Duh. Welcome back to segment two of Harder Than It Looks. Today on segment two, we're going to dive a little deeper into something I can say with 100% certainty is harder than it looks, and that's being on the front lines as a customer service representative answering intercom help calls. This is a position that, candidly, I think even people in parking take for granted because they view this job as someone who picks up a call and simply raises the gate. While that may be true at some of the high customer service, low friction facilities that we take calls from, it is definitely not the case for our customers with facilities where customer service and collecting revenue are their priorities. To shed some light on the subject, I'd like to welcome Tammy Baker to the show. Tammy Baker is the Chief Operating Officer of Parker Technology. She started with Parker eight years ago as the Director of Operation when there were 10 people in this company. Today, she has more than 60 or so people reporting up to her through a couple layers of management and has built an organization that went from taking 5,000 calls per month in one call center in Indianapolis to taking 161,000 calls per month in two call centers, all while also leading our software development efforts and without anyone seeing her break a sweat. Tammy, welcome to Harder Than It Looks. Great, I'm glad to actually be on the show. I've enjoyed watching all the ones that you've done so far. Yeah, that's good. Now you're going to be the star of the show today, and I'm super excited to dive into, because I know you're passionate about this in particular, finding a spotlight on, on the stars of Parker. What did I leave out of the bio or the intro that you would want to add to that before we get into some of the questions? Oh, goodness. No, I don't know that I'd have a lot. I've been in a lot of different industries. I started working full-time the day after I graduated high school. And just worked my way through college and all through that. My first gig actually was 19 years at the same company. And then actually Parker is the next one after that. Every place that I was after that was about two year stints. And I'm going on eight years from running warehouses to running help desks to software development. Leadership is leadership. Yeah. Nope. It's true. Leadership is leadership. But I think as we'll get into here in just a minute. This is a whole different, whole different animal. It takes hard work to run a business like this 24-7. So before we get into sort of the nitty gritty of the job, as we were talking before setting up the show, we started talking about this concept of people doing their best and trying to give them the benefit of the doubt as to whether they were doing their best or they weren't. And so I, I know you're you have thoughts about that. Why don't we why don't we start with the concept of doing your best? Right. Yeah, you know, your segment, you you you've already talked to quite a few people and you know, we can hear how almost any job out there is harder than it looks. For everybody out in podcast land, we all raise our hand to 
we have to make decisions that we don't want to make or that are hard to make or that we had a bad day, we had a bad run in. We know that this is the right thing to do, but we wish we could make an exception for this one person, like all those things that we all have to do. And as we all have our hands up talking about how difficult what we do is, if we would just extend those hands down to the people around us and lend that helping hand to somebody else, because their day is just as crappy as ours in most cases. So I think as, as just as a human race, just humanity in general, if we would just afford the grace and, and understanding to others that we would like to feel ourselves, a lot of jobs probably could be a lot easier than they look. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that's a good point. You're right. We, we can't see into the other person's experience or brain. And, and so we don't know where they are when we're engaging them. And if, and if we're encountering them on a particularly bad day, we won't know unless we ask them. And so I'm certain there are probably plenty of people that we've talked to through the years in all 2 million calls that we took even last year, there were pl plenty of people probably having a really bad day when they pulled to the gate and, and couldn't figure out how to use the machine. Yep. And then we had to help them make sure that they, they made that payment. Even if they were just shopping at Bloomingdale's and spent a trillion dollars, <laughs> you still have to pay that $3 for parking. <laughs> Indeed. And I know that what's interesting, I, I know you've spent a lot of time trying to set that up with our CSRs and trying to, because so, we'll get to them in just a second about how difficult their job is, but just doing our best to put ourselves in the shoes of the motorists, particularly if they're frustrated. Of course, there, there are people that are just being rude and mean and totally unacceptable. And anybody listening to this podcast has, has encountered hundreds of them, maybe thousands, but just speak a little bit to the efforts that you make and that your team makes in helping our CSRs have empathy for the parking customers on the other side. So a lot of that is just getting real stories back to the CSRs. When a certain CSR has a situation that reveals more than what we would typically know about, we take snippets of that and get it out to the team so that they can see it's not just some fantasy or something that happens every once in a while. We have tons and tons of real clips of parents exiting hospitals at talking about that their child has just gone through a, a bone marrow transplant and they're having problems getting out of the garage. Getting that gate to go up is the least of their worry, right? Or could be. So I think the important part is I'll go through 99 jerks and treat them with the most care and respect possible to know that one got what they needed. Yeah. And so being able to make sure that we play that story back to the CSRs so that they don't lose sight of it, because when you're getting those 99 jerks and they just happen to all come in a row, <laughs> sometimes that's really difficult. So it's just being mindful of the one and the one that's gonna really need you and you wanna be there for them. Yeah. Yeah, you know, what's funny about that is I can remember stories that you've told me where you've taken lots of calls and there have been even times where even as practiced as you are and as cool and calm and collected as you are, there are people that can push your buttons and really get under your skin. And it's, I'm sure it's really hard to keep your composure when the other, when the person on the other side is really just trying to push buttons to get you to raise the gate and let them out for free. Yeah. You just have to remember that any reaction you give them that they're looking for, is giving them the power that they're requesting. 
Yeah. And so it's maybe not the most healthy way to always look at it, but it helps me <laughs> is that if you're here to push my buttons, I just don't want to let you. And that's how I maintain control of the call. And yeah. I don't give you what you want. Yeah. So and it helps. That helps. <laughs> yeah. And just giving the CSRs the knowledge that they, they have the power because they, they have what that person wants. And mm -hmm. ultimately, it's their job to absorb the energy, not give it back, and ultimately help that person through the transaction. In the way that it's they're supposed to, whether that is getting information and getting the gate so we got, have good traffic flow, or we're pulling in the $2 that's needed for the parking because you know this garage needs it based on the, the revenue stream that's coming in. Yeah, right. Or the $150 in an airport because that person's been there for six days and they really want to get out for free, right? Yeah. They, they know how much that parking is going to cost them. And, and so again, it's our job to, to help them through the transaction. So that's probably a good segue because we're talking about rules and we're talking about different types of friction and all of that we can put into the system. The software helps the CSRs with that level of friction. But we were talking again earlier about you had a little bit different take or a little bit different spin on the hardest part of the job. Take us through sort of this, the scrutiny and the hardest part of the job from your perspective on our CSRs or on any frontline employee that's, that's being scrutinized for their level of service, but they're also their level of compliance, if you will. Thinking about this segment and kind of lining up different things that I'd want to talk about, one of the things that hit me that I, honestly I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about before is we can talk about handling difficult calls, handling different, difficult people, being yelled at, uh, taking calls back to back to back, 200 calls a day, being in and having to run to the bathroom and run back to my desk because I don't have enough time. There's the calls too busy, the queue's too busy, right? There's, yeah. we can weave in a ton of nuances. But when I was really thinking about all of those things, and then I layered on top of it that at your highest points of frustration, you are always on camera. You are mm. always recorded. So think about your day. You walk in and you check into the office and then a camera crew follows you in right behind you. Yeah. And you get to walk down the hall without tape rolling. But once you step into a meeting, you step into your office, you pick up the phone for a call, every single one of those steps are recorded. And then not only you, but other people on the call, other people that couldn't be in the call, your boss, the chairman of wherever, whoever is has access to the data, hits play and goes back through and judges every little piece of your interaction. Your tone, your body language, did you follow this rule and that rule? Did you say this first or that first? Did you give a proper greeting? Did you give a pro proper exit salutation? Every little thread of everything you did for those 200 calls in the day is scrutinized. And then out of those 200, even if you messed up one, but it happened to be the one that was the president's daughter who had come in to talk to them for the day, that's the one call out of your 200 that everybody is going to hear about. Yeah. So just thinking about not only having to deal with all of the stress of the call, but then the fact that it's all recorded and you then go back through and re have to relive and, and justify and own up to and then talk about my learning opportunities and my paths forward from that. 
it's just a different level of scrutiny that I don't know that hardly any of us have to deal with in our job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and in fact, I think 99% of us, I'll include myself would not, not only not be comfortable, but probably wouldn't really appreciate that level of scrutiny. Wouldn't want that level of scrutiny in our jobs to have people listening and then to, to have people have a, a bona fide opinion about what could have been done differently and what could have been and should have been done better. And so I, I would imagine our quality department probably has a hard job to pick their priorities and then find the right way to funnel the information to the managers who then have to deliver feedback in a constructive way so that you're literally not tearing the CSRs down because it just happens, right? Mm -hmm. it's, perfection is just not even in the realm of possibility. When you're dealing with that much, that many things going on and that, much, that many calls coming through. And that's so funny. One of the things that we talk about the most when we're interviewing CSRs is around feedback. And tell, us, tell me about a job where you've received feedback in the past. How did it work? How did you respond? Like we try to really dig in and because what we found is if you're not used to receiving feedback, then we're going to have to tee it up a lot differently for you at first so that you can yeah. wean your way into it. Or in some cases, it really honestly might mean that it, this job is not a good fit for you Yeah, because you are going to get feedback almost on a daily basis Yeah, on what you did or didn't do. Yeah. And I would imagine you've probably got several stories of individuals who said, oh yeah, sure. I can take feedback. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, it, it's how I grow. <laughs> yeah. And so then that makes me think about the, the 60 or so individuals that are on the front lines uh, that do take that feedback every day, how gritty they are, how thin skinned and thick skinned all at the same time, they have to have empathy. They've got to follow the rules. They have to smile. It's, it's tough to smile when you talk. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> Trying to encourage people to smile while they're on the phone and it's hard to smile and talk, but it's certainly it's easier to, to be cordial and warm if you can. So yeah. it's hard. It's really hard. It's a hard thing to do. Well, yeah, our managers really try to incorporate as much of the positive as we can yeah. into the, the talk track. Because I think that if you spend too much time telling people what not to do, they never hear what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And so being able to pull on the threads of, even if it wasn't, you know, the perfect delivery, but it was really in the realm of where we need to get to, yeah. then you use that as the building block and make sure that you're really trying to communicate your encouragement as much as possible. Yeah. So that feels like a pro tip is people are listening to this and they have their own frontline employees, the ability to frame it in a, from a positive perspective and not necessarily, and, and being mindful of the delivery mode and what's being said so that the person can hear the feedback and not necessarily shut down because they know, they know negative, something negative is coming, right? Right behind it. And we're, we're all our own worst critic. And if you go all the way back to the kind of how we opened up talking about everybody's doing the best that they can. Yeah. So even if my best on this call really isn't all that great of an effort, when you look at it, at it in the theme of the greatest of calls, right? But it was the best I could. Don't you think I'm already beating myself up enough? Yeah. And for you to come in after that and help coach me on that call that I've already 
put myself over the ringer for, yeah, it's not going to take much for me to go negative on that real fast. Yeah. Nope. It's good. I, and, and in the moment, it just made me think about something else. As we're, as the CSRs are taking these calls and, and as we have, I don't know, we've got three or four or five now that have taken two and 300,000 calls. I might go so far as to say that they have talent that lends itself to helping customers figure out parking equipment, right? Because actors and the classic example for me is like Ryan Seacrest. Okay. That might be a bad example. Ryan Seacrest just work his way through a show or any of the on TV personalities. And then I know for myself personally, when we're doing videos and the red light goes on, I get stupid. And so you really begin to appreciate how hard it is to keep your thoughts together, to keep the show rolling, to be as, as intelligent and, and thoughtful as you can be while the red light's on all the time. Again, I'm going to argue that the people taking those calls for us and any parking call center have a talent for it. And it's really our job to find those that have that talent. And it's amazing. The ones that are really more detail oriented and it's just a different level of, I don't know, I don't know what in their personality, but we have CSRs that can tell what the equipment is just by the sound that they hear in the background. So they're almost like the parking whisperer. The parking whisperer. Don't tell John Oglesby that we said that. (laughs) He thinks he's the parking whisperer. At least he's claiming the moniker. (laughs) Don't say anything. All right. So that leads me to question number three or point number three. And that is, I was sharing with a, it was either a customer or prospect. It might've even been somebody that I was talking to a colleague. One of the things that I think, again, back to the misperception that we're going to take the call, we're just raising the gate, right? Nothing could be further than truth. There are some times and there are some facilities that want us to lean much more heavily towards customer service, but we also have just as many and probably two or three times more that really they pay us to troubleshoot. And it struck me that one of the hardest parts of the job for me is the critical thinking that our CSRs have to go through as in where the call's coming from, what lane is it in, which type of garage, is it audio only, is it video? And there's just lots of stuff going on and they've got to put themselves in that customer's shoes and then weave their way through to ultimately help the customer pay and get on their way. So maybe your thoughts on critical thinking and what we asked uh, of our CSRs and how hard it is. And take all of those, the, the whole laundry list of items that you just mentioned, and then add on top of it, the nature of, of the queue when it's just exploding and we have more calls than I don't know what in that queue, right? Yeah. So the CSRs, they want to do it right. They want to do it well, but they want to do it fast because that queue is blowing up. Yeah. And sometimes you get so fixated on a certain component, like you're so fixated on making sure that you're doing XYZ properly with the device that you forgot to really pay attention to the lane name. Yeah. And I've done it, oh my gosh, myself. And it and and I and I, it bothers me so much each time. I'm going through, I'm asking all the right questions and 20 seconds, 30 seconds into the call, I look up and they're calling me from a monthly lane. And I'm like, I, I that should have been a 10 second call and it took me 40 seconds. Yep. It really, there really is so many little components that missing one of them and okay, then go back. And if you look at that one call from me, 
you're going to be like, what in the world? No, I don't want you jumping in to help. Stay off of the queue. But I have 40,000 others that were really good. Yeah. I have plenty of times where I've retained revenue, plenty yeah. of times where I got the person going and, and traffic flow was great. I yeah. put in the right alert, like all these great things I did. But I can tell you that one call when I look up yeah. and see that the monthly lane bothers yeah. me more than yeah. the positive aspects of all those other calls combined. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Back to being your worst critic. I, I, I will tell on myself and I think poor Angel had to do had to watch this in quality. <laughs> I was down taking the handful of calls that I've taken. I haven't taken that many, but I've taken a few. And this poor woman, she was taking her mother to the hospital and she had parked in a garage and she was trying to get to the next garage over and she didn't know how to, she didn't know how to get out of the garage. And it dawned on me about four minutes into the call and our average calls are a minute long that she wasn't actually in her car. She had pushed the help button <laughs> without being in the car. I am totally oblivious. I'm totally blind. But it, again, it's that situational awareness that we take for granted from those that take all of those calls every day. It, it really is harder than it looks to, to well, absorb all of the information and get it right every time. And even again, I've taken plenty of calls myself and I've run into those. Sometimes we get so the video is so nice because it can tell you so many things that you don't yeah. then have to try to figure out on your own. Yeah. Yep. And so you get you know, used to the video calls and then all of a sudden you pick up an audio call. And you're going through the steps. And it, why would somebody stand in an exit lane and push a help button? There's, no, there's not a reason for it. So it's not one of the first thing that's on your mind. And so you almost have to convince yourself that's something that could happen. Yeah. So it's easy to lose track of some of those things sometimes because you want to go back to what makes sense. And if all of the customers always did what made sense, then we probably wouldn't need half the people that we have. Yeah, no, it's it's true. And even our chairman has made the comment that he gets stupid in a parking garage. I think we all do. You get in front of a machine, you get under pressure. Okay, so the last thing I'd like to, I'd like to flip the recording piece on its ear or on its head as our last uh, segment here and talk about the power of the ability to review a call when you get a call from a manager and with almost 100% certainty, that call did not go the way that manager or the customer reported it to the manager. Talk about a couple of those situations. And really, at least from my satisfaction or from my standpoint, it's very satisfying to know. Yeah, let's go review the tape. I'd like to see the tape. So right. take us yeah. through that. So honestly, those are usually pretty, pretty nice calls to break up the day. Yeah. Because so often the, a, a customer wants to be right. They want to, you know, I don't know what all they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. But they don't really realize that calls are recorded. So they, yep. I think sometimes they feel like they can say whatever they want and who's going to say any different. Yep. And getting a, an email from a manager asking about why something happened a certain way and being able to pull that call recording down. And not have to do what he said, she said, it's all right here. Just hit play. Yeah. And I would have to say that 90% of the time, almost 85% of the time, there's something the CSR could have done to do it better. Sure. But 90, 95% of the time, it in no way, shape or form happened even remotely close to yeah. how the 
motorists described the yeah. situation. Yeah. Especially, in, and I'll even do it myself. I'll go, I'll pull up the call log, I'll look at the CSR name, and sometimes I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm a little tentative when I hit play. But even in those cases, if it's somebody that I know we've been coaching or counseling and I know yeah. what they're working on, yeah. but plenty of times, even with the CSR that, that has been on that journey, I've been able to hit play. And then, oh, I don't think that there's anything almost more gratifying than having a CSR that you've been working on tone with, or you're working with their smile or whatever the key aspect is that you're working with, right? Yep. And you've told them how much it matters. You've told them every call is a demo call. You never know who's going to hear it. You never know who's walking by. Like you can tell them all this stuff, right? Yeah. Then a manager sends you a note that's very heated talking about why would this happen this way? And I want answers Yeah. and pull up the call and it's that CSR and you hit play and their tone was almost right on. They followed the rules. They did what they needed to do. And you get to write this nice note back along with the call recording to the garage manager. Yeah. And then you get to forward the whole thing to that CSR and show them the fruits of all the work that they put into it. Yeah. And uh, that I don't, I really don't know that there's much more gratifying. Than that. No, I certainly know that when I hear those stories, when I hear from people that are like, hey, this XYZ happened, I'm like, okay, let's go to the tape because I, I am anxious to hear what actually happened. So that's, it's so good. And again, to flip it on, the, on its ear, back to what you were saying is what's hard is that they, they are getting constant feedback. It is awesome to be able to give them that feedback when they nailed it. And someone complained that they nailed it too good because they probably didn't give the customer what they wanted and then the customer was upset. So yep. all good. Okay. We could go on all day, but unfortunately these folks listening have to go to work or, or maybe it's a Saturday and they're going to go get up, get about their day. So I want to say thank you for taking the time. Thank you for doing all of the hard work that you do every day for Parker. And most importantly, uh, thank you for representing uh, our CSRs so well on this call and every day. I appreciate it very much. Okay, that's a wrap on this episode of Harder Than It Looks, Parking Uncovered, presented by Parker Technology. Please leave us a review if you liked what you heard. Make sure you tune in next month as we continue to uncover tips, tricks, and best practices to manage what we all know is harder than it looks, parking a car. Bye for now.